When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week, author David Ritz joins Nate to discuss his book, The God Groove, A Blues Journey to Faith. David is without question the greatest ghostwriter in pop history, having partnered with Ray Charles, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, Rick James, B.B. King, Buddy Guy, Etta James, Janet Jackson, Willie Nelson, and Grandmaster Flash, among many others. In this episode, David tells Nate about his experiences, including persuading Ray Charles to let him ghostwrite Brother Ray, co-writing one of Marvin Gaye's biggest hits, the joys and frustrations of working with Aretha Franklin, and the spiritual advice he got from believers like Smokey Robinson, Willie Nelson, and Janet Jackson. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. Today I'm joined by author David Ritz, author of The God Groove, and so many, so many books. i got to read some of his bibliography before we start. He's author, the ghostwriter of Brother Ray, the autobiography of Ray Charles. He's the author of the definitive biographies of Marvin Gaye and Aretha Franklin, uh, written, ghostwritten autobiographies of Rick James, Grandmaster Flash, and many, many more. David, welcome to the show. I appreciate your um, having me on. It's it's a thrill. I've been reading your books for years, and for so long I didn't realize you existed because you were ghosting so well. Here, here I am. The ghost comes alive. And so the new book, The God Groove, uh, it's subtitled Blue's Journey to Faith, but it's really the autobiography of rock music's greatest ghostwriter. Well, I appreciate that. That's kind. I, you know, I don't really know if it's an autobiography because, you know, it's kind of um, short, and it's sort of. I think it's more of a a uh, memoir, and I'm not sure I could tell you the difference between autobiography and a memoir. Other than to say, I think a memoir is more of like a a briefer a sort of a reflection, and an autobiography is more like um, a detailed. Uh, life story, which this isn't. I mean, I just kind of give sort of glimpses of my past. And um, anyway. Anyway, I found it totally compelling. And, and let's get well, into it. That. You yeah. start You start with, and I got to admit, I was skeptical. You know, I was, I'm trying to get you on to talk about Aretha Franklin or Marvin Gaye or any right. of your great books. And, and, and you want to talk about your religious conversion. And immediately, you know, alarm bells ring. But yeah. You know, one of the things you emphasize and and talking about your spiritual mentors in the book, people like Jesse Coulter and others, is that they didn't proselytize. And I really didn't feel like this book proselytizes. It just tells your story. Yeah, it just tells your story. And and it's so your spirituality is so linked to your love of music that I think our listeners will totally be able to relate to that, even if they're uh, atheists like myself or lost, uh, uh, lost in the spirit world. (laughs) So cool. Well, Let's. Um, the, I want to quote from the the introduction briefly. Okay. Um, you said that many of these artists led me to another voice I had never expected to hear, the voice of God. Those those artists taught me that, ironically, I had always been hearing that voice. The voice was in their music. The voice was in the groove. The ever-changing voice spoke in shouts and whispers, dispensing wisdom about ways to heal the human heart. When did you realize that the music was speaking speaking to you on just a a spiritual level as well as a pleasure? 
level? I think it always uh, um, was, but I wasn't prepared to call it that. I, I mean, in other words, it, just from a gut um, level, you know, I remember when I was 12 or 13 and I heard the uh, Sam Cooke or the staple um, singers, I remember their, their, their early albums. I would listen to them again and again. And I didn't know what to do. I was so excited and sort of thrilled and overjoyed by them. And now that's also true of jazz. I mean, so it, it isn't just uh, African-American gospel music that got to me, that got me to a point where I went, oh my God, I don't know how to express the joy this is giving me. I mean, it was also true of um, Charlie Parker and Lester Young and a whole bunch of people. Uh, uh, but, you know, I grew up in a Jewish um, secular household, and my uh, um, dad was an intellectual and a uh, Marxist. Um, and so, you know, it, it, I had all this kind of, you know, built in uh, uh, prejudice against calling it God or, or anything. I mean, it was just art, you know. And so my um, dad, who uh, loved jazz and, and uh, you know, was the first person to tell me about jazz, and his albums were the first jazz albums I heard, it, you know, helped me articulate this in terms of high art and and so that that attitude um I kept and that's the attitude that I basically grew up with and so my change of attitude came about as I try to explain in my book the change of attitude came about when I actually engaged with these artists on a personal uh, level. And, you know, when you're a ghost uh, writer, your job is to channel the voice of another person. And I grew up in a household where the idea was to listen for the pause in the conversation so you can jump in and talk. And that talking was usually about trying to disprove what the other person had just told you. So, I mean, it was this ambient, and it was great. I mean, I, I don't mean it was terrible because, you know, there's something to say for kind of dialectic conversational combat, you know, it's, it's a, but, but it wasn't until I became a ghostwriter where my job was just, just, you know, shut up and listen to these people. And if you're going to do the book, well, you have to listen with your heart, uh, because being a ghost writer, I learned, is a peculiar kind of trade. Um, and so there's spirit has to interact with your own spirit. And um, when that happened, you know, when I met, you know, Gray Charles or Marvin Gaye was, you know, extremely important. Uh, because he was only four or five years older than I was. But in any event, to make a long story short, I had to be um, the um, witness to other people's uh, spirituality. And then I had to not only hear them, I had to express it in book form. I had to sort of become them. So all of that kind of... Um, uh, changed me, and um, but you know we're talking about a long period of time. I mean, I I began, I'm uh, seventy five, and I you know probably fell in love with music when I was eight or seven or six, and by the time I was ten or eleven or twelve, I had pretty, uh, you know, I knew you know jazz and uh, and uh, um, bop and and a whole bunch of stuff, you know, big uh, band stuff. So so. It wasn't until I was really in my uh, 50s and 60s that I found that I got to the core of it. And, and I kind of think that's also um, what this book is about. It's, it's kind of an, an ex 
it's 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 like what is at the core of this music that I love so much, and um, at the core is this sort of mysterious love. This sounds curveball, but this kind of this mysterious love vibration that I you know, choose to call God, but I don't care what anybody else calls it. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm, and that's in that regard, I'm not a proselytizer. And I think kind of proselytization, if that's even a word is sort of, uh, is kind of born out of ego. You know, you, you just want everyone to think the way you do. And I don't care about that at all, but, but I do care about honoring what I think I've discovered for me in, and that, that, music expresses some uh, spiritual energy that is positive and transformative, as in you sing the blues to lose the blues. In other words, you know, you just take the blues, which is basically the form out of which all this comes. Um, and, you know, what is the blues? I mean, the blues is a cry, you know, to the heavens or to God or however you want to, uh, however you want to put it. But the blues is a transformative uh, musical uh, expression in which uh, the blues man loses the blues by singing the blues. And, and, and so I think that's what hap that's what's happened to me in my life. And I think that happens to me almost every day that music, uh, transforms me and turns negative energy into positive energy. And, you know, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm saying a bunch of cliches, but any of it, let's hear a song real quick. This is, uh, Ray Charles' uh, song "I Got a Woman," which is one of the first songs yeah. where he blended his gospel roots with right. the R and B pop scene, and so I we'll hear Ray Charles' "I Got a Woman." Way over town, that's good to me. Oh yeah, say I got a woman. Way over town, good to me. Oh yeah, she give me money. Yeah, she's a kind of friend indeed. I got a woman. And that was Ray Charles' uh, hit single for Atlantic Records, hit on the R&B charts, I Got a Woman. And tell the story. You, you mentioned that you got the job as a ghostwriter, but you didn't really get a job as a ghostwriter. You made yourself a ghostwriter, and, and it was yeah. difficult. You were obsessed with getting to Ray Charles. And you had a very clever strategy to get past his management. How did you do well, it? Well, I mean, yeah, I was kind of crazy. I was an ad guy, and I had to get out of advertising, and I was unhappy using my talent to advertise polyester jump uh, suits uh, back in Dallas, where I was, um, where I had this um, very small agency open with some friends. So I sort of made up my mind to come to L.A. and convince Ray Charles to let me write his biography and because uh, I didn't know about ghost uh, writing you know I was trained in college and in college you you learn about biographers and sometimes they win the Pulitzer Prize and so forth so I wasn't thinking about being a ghostwriter anyway I came to LA I couldn't get through to him his people were very protective so I went to Western Union and asked whether you could uh, send a telegram in Braille and they told me that could so I be you know I'm, my attitude was he'd be the only one in the office who could read Braille I didn't think other people in this office would have taken the time to learn Braille, and it proved to be true. So these Braille telegrams were my uh, pitches to him. You know, I'm here in, uh, I'm here in uh, L.A., I'm at the Hot Sheet uh, Motel down the street. Um, you know, I'm crazy about you and your music, and I know a lot about it, and I really want to do your biography. And, you know, I... I I don't know how many telegrams, how many telegrams I um, sent him, but ultimately he called me and said, "Come over." And I kind of felt as though if I would sort of meet him, that it would be good because I I did um, think I was persuasive in my genuineness, you know. I mean, and and he did. He kind of picked up 
the idea that I was in seer, though, but of course he, and the incredible thing and why everything changed because, I mean, I hadn't written a book before. I had done academic work. I had done journalism. I had done advertising, but I hadn't written a book, but he didn't care. I mean, he just kind of thought, well, this guy knows a lot about me and he seems, and my idea was to do a biography. And then I had an agent who told me, do an autobiography. You'll get, uh, you'll get paid more. And I thought, well, that's important because I want to make a lot of money, but I, 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 I don't, you know, I don't know about autobiographies. And then the agent said to me, um, which book would you rather read a book written by an egghead kind of biographer or a book written in Ray's own voice about his life. And I said, Oh, I'd much rather read a book written in Ray's own voice about his life. And then he said, you should write the book that you want to read, not the one that you believe you should write. So that hit me hard. I said, wow, write the book that I want to read, (laughs) you know? So, and that began the whole thing. And, and of course I didn't uh, know how to do it. And, and I had read, uh, uh, um, Lady uh, Sings the Blues, which is ghostwritten, and I had read the autobiography of Malcolm X, but those were the only two books that I kind of looked to as example of, you know, good ghostwritten books. But I, um, you know, I just talked and interviewed and looked at the transcripts and typed them out. And then I, when I typed them out, I thought, well, that's not him. Because, you know, the I hears differently than the ear. You know, if you have a transcript of me talking now to you and you read that transcript in a literal way, that isn't me. I, I mean, that, that, and so, so it, 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 that was an epiphany in that I began to understand that, um, that ghostwriting is, um, an art form in that art is art, uh, Official, that it's artifice. That, in other words, I had to artfully recreate his voice on the page, and that required editing, using certain phrases or whatever. This and and to tell you the truth, I still don't know exactly what I'm doing because I do it by instinct. But I did do it, and people read it and they thought, well, it really sounds like him. So that it, I found that I had a sort of a, a gift for this weird um, thing. And I enjoyed it. I, I mean, I liked pretending I was him and I liked trying to please him. And because I had been in advertising, I was used to working with a client and I just kind of saw him as the client whom I had to please. So it was a much different paradigm than anything I had um, learned as an undergraduate or in graduate school, which is, you know, find your own voice. Uh, no, find his voice, you know. So uh, everything changed, you know, once I... And then the other thing that I loved about being a ghostwriter is that when I heard Ray speak, I heard the kind of musicality of his voice because you know we learned to speak before we learned to um sing and his singing voice comes out of his speaking voice so you know the way he'll cut off certain words and scream and laugh and so i knew that the root of his musical individuality was in his speech and then it occurred to me oh i'll be making uh, uh, music that that the prose that I write has to sort of mirror his music. And that was an exciting um, thing. And it remains that so to, it remains so to this day. Um, I started working with the uh, rappers uh, Noop Dogg and on a book and and man to try to get his rhythms and rhymes down on the page is a, is a, it's just a great challenge. And, and even though I've been doing this for, um, I don't know, 45 years now, every new gig is still, how am I going to create this person as a literary character in which the ear will hear 
and and the eyes will hear, and so on and so forth. So, uh, anyway, that's a l- very long answer to your short question about how I got the gig. But that's how I got the gig. <laughs> well, that's that's what we're looking for is to hear your stories. And so, you you mentioned in the book that after Brother Ray came out and is successful, that you thought, oh boy, Stevie Wonder and James Brown are yeah. going to be beating down my door. But it doesn't happen. Right. And no. you have to get out there and hustle again, and you right. hustle your way into your next big project, with his, which is the great Marvin Gaye. How did you land this one? Well, that was also a, another hustle. And by the way, I'm still hustling. You know, I'm still chasing after people. Uh, and, and, but, but, but in the case of Marvin's, how I sort of managed that was um, an album came out he did called Hear My Dear. And it was a, a, um, I thought it was a brilliant work, and it was attacked by the LA Times. And it's a very idi- idiosyncratic work about um, his de- Divorce from Anna Gordy, um, who was, uh, who was Ari Gordy's um, sister. And any event, the LA Times attacked it, and I answered the attack. And my hope was, well, first of all, in answering it, I was completely genuine because, I mean, I was absolutely crazy for the album. And I still am. I mean, I still put it up there as one of his great. I think time has vindicated uh, you on that one. I think so, you know, but but it's taken a while. And like when it came out, everybody, who cares about his personal divorce? But I said, man, this is like, you know, Ingmar uh, Ergman or something, you know, uh, 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 um, scenes from a marriage. But in any event, I wrote this letter to the LA Times comparing uh, Marvin to Ellington and Charles uh, Mingus and Stevie Wonder, and he's misunderstood. And my hope was that Marvin would read the letter and call me, and he did. And uh, we got together, and he had read the uh, Ray Charles book and was interested in doing his own book. And I had no idea of the chaos of his personal life. I just knew that unlike... Ray, which was a great experience, but I was kind of scared throughout it. I mean, I, 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 I learned to chill after a while, but I mean, Ray was much older than I was, tough as nails, very strict. And, you know, and you always had to be on your guard. And, and, and you know, he kind of ran his organization militaristically, and, if any, you know, so that whole old-time James ba- uh, James Brown, Ray Charles R&B saying, if your shoes aren't polished, you get fined, and so on and so forth. So um, Marvin was the opposite. You know, he was like an older brother. He was very relaxed. Um, you know, we could get high together. Um, and, and, and he was uh, devastatingly charming. And, and not that Ray wasn't charming. He, he had his own kind of brand of charm. But Marvin was very, very loose and um, uh, very intellectual um, and Christian and extremely Christian. I mean, deeply Christian and sort of knowledgeably Christian, but also knowledgeable about Islam and Buddhism and so forth. So, I mean, it, it, it wasn't his Christianity, even though he was born in a kind of a form of per parochial Christianity, he had gone beyond that, even though he did, anyway, it's a long, complicated thing, but his, um, he spoke of Christianity, and particularly of Jesus, in a way that was sort of irresistible. Now, part of its irresistibility was because it was rooted in his music and his speaking voice. And and for all of those of us who love Marvin Gaye's um, uh, uh, singing voice, part of what we know about his singing voice, it is extremely uh, seductive, as was his speaking voice so that he spoke very quietly and gently and sweetly and um, and did have a sort of ministry um, that was, you know, evident in uh, what's going on. Um, and so um, he had me, you know, reading books and talking to him. And I think, you know, it isn't that he tried to convert me. He didn't. He, he just... He just 
I was interested. I w- and, 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 and part of why I was so interested in his uh, relationship to Christianity, because he had such a bad relationship with his um, father, who, you know, wound up killing him, uh, and who was a preacher. And so my uh, question in my head was, how could you still believe you know, in Jesus, when you grew up in this kind of crazy uh, atmosphere, crazy household in which, you know, your father uh, physically abused you and mentally abused you and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so that's what kept me hanging in there with Marvin, was that his, his, um, his relationship to Christianity was so strong. Now, it isn't that it wasn't without equivocation. He did have some equivocations. And and again, we don't have enough time here because it could take 14 hours. And I'm not sure even then I could explain the whole thing that I tried to explain in my book. But but the whole bottom line was you when you when Marvin was uh, I'm right, you know, when he was straight, when he was you know, not crazy high, and because you know later in his life he you know, became addicted to cocaine and then crack cocaine, and he and he you know literally lost his mind. But when he was right, I felt as though I could see, you know, the Jesus in him. Now I, I don't mean he was Jesus, and and but 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 there was something very beautiful about Marvin's spirit and the beauty of his spirit is the same beauty that I heard in his music. And the two of you collaborated and created something beautiful, his last great hit single, Sexual Healing. So let's hear that for a second. Well, anyway, the, the 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 short form of the story is we're in Ostend, Belgium, and he's in exile, and the IRS is after him for taxes, and he's off of uh, Motown because they released an album with his approval, and he's got a new deal on Columbia, and uh, he has his track at that he loves that was written by his keyboardist Odell Brown, and it's kind of this you know this kind of reggae tinge track but he doesn't have a story for it and we're just kind of sitting around and talking and um there's a on the coffee table there's a kind of an avant-garde book of S&M cartoons and I look at it and I say you know this is some sick um, shit what you really need is um is um sexual uh, healing and he says well what is that and I said well it just seems like it's you know you kind of love a person and they love you back and there's no pain and there's no torture and you're healed of whatever. So, I mean, I guess I was being somewhat judgmental about S&M, but in any event, that was the nature of our conversation. And he was hit by the phrase and he said, that's really intriguing. Why don't you write a poem about that? And so I did. I just, you know, when blue teardrop and fun. So, you know, in about five or 10 minutes time, I wrote out the um, what became the um, lyrics to the song, and I gave it to them, and it was almost like every word had a um, note attached to it. And he uh, f- um, kind of uh, forged a, uh, a uh, melody over the words. But the song was really, it, it, it kind of worked two different ways. It was, because I'm a ghost writer, I was able to write the song because I needed to give him a script. In other words, he needed um, language that he didn't have. And really, the, the one of the most fundamental jobs of a ghostwriter is to give language to people who need language. And they have the language down there somewhere in them. But, you know, the ghost has enough chops or enough uh, uh, um, earnestness 
to um, create the uh, language. And but so in a certain way, it was a ghost-written song for Marvin Gaye. But it also turned out to be autobiographical for me that I realized that, and it took me a long time to uh, come to terms with the fact that I had a sexual addiction and I needed sexual healing and, you know, needed to go into 12-step programs for uh, sexual compulsivity. And um, so it's... it goes it's very, very sort of deep for me and and um you know, that's the irony of it. You know, wrote the song for him, turned out to be I really wrote the song for me, you know. But that took another I don't know how many years I wrote in eighty two. I don't think yeah, I went into the program in ninety five, so it took me um thirteen years to apply the song to myself, which is kind of crazy but you know it just takes as long as it takes yeah and and after you collaborate on the song with him then the album comes out you're thanked in the acknowledgments but there's no credit yeah so we had a a legal fight that i fortunately um won because i had a tape recording of us writing the song together so it you know it 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 was a pretty easy case to win but but uh but but also he was not i mean he was he was ill you know he was he was so hooked on 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 kind of crack and 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 you know had suicidal thoughts towards the end and his whole decline was uh you know really i'm sad and and um so you know I wasn't angry, uh, and I'm not angry now. I mean, I'm kind of grateful that I got to sort of meet him and know him and write a book about him and write a song with him. And now I've written, I've, I've actually written two books about him because I also ghost wrote the book of his uh, second wife, Jan, whom I adore, um, a book called After the Dance. And that's her autobiography about her life with Marvin. So I got to revisit uh, his story from another person's point of view. And at the only other time that's happened to me has been with Aretha, um, interestingly enough. And tell but us about you, Aretha. That's the next big um, subject yeah. in your book. Uh, yeah. I, um, I, you know, it was another me being a crazy guy. I mean, just as I chased after uh, Ray Charles, uh, with those telegrams in Braille, and just that I, ha- just as I had written the LA Times, uh, a defense uh, of Marvin's albums as a as a uh, way to meet him. I met Arisa when I was writing Ray Charles's book in maybe 1978 or 79, and ever and I asked her, "Do you want to do a book?" And she said, "Nope." But I didn't take no for an answer, and years went by. And every year I would write her postcards and letters, and and I made a point to meet her her um, sisters and her brother. And I did a book with her producer Jerry uh, Wexler. And I became friends with uh, Luther uh, Andros, another of her producers. And anyway, I just kept after her. And then one day I was in Detroit and she called me and she said, let's talk. I want to do a book. And man, I think that was the happiest, one of the happiest nights of my life because it was basically Ray, Marvin and uh, Risa were the three people I wanted to write books about more than any other people, and and now I was going to get to do it. And people told me, man, she's so guarded, you aren't ever going to get it, you know, you aren't ever going to get to the truth, and I kind of said, I'm going to just dig down, and whatever charm I have, I'm going to dig it up and be so sweet and loving, she'll never be, <laughs> you know, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't do it. I didn't make a dent in her armor. I mean, we had some very pleasant evenings in her kitchen, eating chicken and her vanilla pudding and listening to gospel music and jazz. And I don't mean we didn't have some pleasant times, 
But in terms of getting the nitty-gritty, I just didn't get anywhere. And I knew the story because I had done Jerry Wexler's book and Smokey Robinson's book, and I had... You know, I knew a lot about her, and like I said, I came prepared with interviews that I had done with her brother and her uh, sisters, Um, but I just couldn't get anywhere, and she had this idealized view of her life, and um, I began to understand at a certain point that was her kind of strategy for survival, and I had to respect it. You know, um, sometimes things are too painful to... um, address. So rather than address them, we idealize them. So anyway, uh, finally I gave up and she kind of pushed me off the project. She kept my name on the book, but she didn't have me involved in the, uh, in the um, editing or the uh, final drafts and the book came out and I was, you know, really disappointed in it. And it didn't do anything because I think there wasn't that much in it, though it's very interesting. I mean, I I think it's an important kind of document to understand her because this is how she understood her story. So, I mean, I think scholars in years to come will and should, you know, read her book. But I knew it was um, a deeper story and a more complicated story and about, 11 or 12 for 13 years went by. I just couldn't live with the idea that, uh, that I hadn't told the Aretha Franklin story um, as I knew it. And I don't, I didn't want to be a biographer, you know, it goes back to my earlier discussions about having discovered my talent as a ghostwriter. And the only reason the Martin Gay biography turned into a biography because he was killed before I could get through writing a book, and I, he wasn't there to approve it. So I had to do a biography, though if you read that book, Divided um, Soul, you see that he probably one third of the book is written in his uh, voice because I had so many interviews with him. But anyway, getting back to uh, Risa, I just made up my mind, if I don't do this book, you know, who's going to do it? I mean, who kind of knows his, her uh, sisters and brothers and producers? And who knows her? And I knew her. I mean, I had worked on her autobiography for two years. And it hurt because I knew she'd be angry. And part of a good, what a ghostwriter does is want to keep, as I said before, the client happy. And I knew she wouldn't be happy. Uh, but I figured I had a higher calling here, which was to, you know, leave an historical document that was accurate and that reflected the complexity of her art and the complexity of her personality. So I wrote um, a long biography of Aretha Franklin and and um, she wasn't happy. And um, um, I wasn't happy that she wasn't happy, but I knew she wasn't going to be happy. And um, it came out, and it's out there, and uh, now there are two books. There's her autobiography, and there's my biography, and um, I'm glad that I did it, uh, uh, but I don't especially want to do it again. I, I, I mean, I my, like I said, I feel like my calling is as a ghost writer, and... Um, um, so and we're very grateful that you did because it's an excellent oh, book. You. And I, and I want to cue up our next song, which is Aretha Franklin doing her live uh, Amazing Grace album covering Marvin Gaye's Holy Holy. So here's Aretha oh. doing Holy Holy. Oh, that's beautiful. And that was Aretha doing Marvin Gaye's Holy Holy, which was a little bit, I don't know if controversial is the right word, but it was sort of an unusual call for her to yeah. do pop song like Holy Holy in the context of a gospel concert. She also did Carol King, a medley right. involving a Carol King song in that same show. Um, but Well, and, and also it's important to put that in context, too, because, you know, 
by now the uh, the uh, Amazing Grace uh, uh, documentary is out, which I think is great. I mean, I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful uh, film. But you know, you got to remember that church is done in you know 1971, 1972 is the time zone. Marvin just put out what's going on and Carol King just put out um tapestry. So in addition to doing contemporary old gospel, uh she wants to do contemporary songs as well and kind of gospelize those. And the case of doing Holy Holy, when I hear it I just get, you know, I just get goosebumps. I mean it's such a beautiful, beautiful rendition of a song and Marvin Gaye's a hard artist to cover. But he also wrote the song as a uh, soul gospel song. So, I mean, it, it, it just made perfect sense that she would do it. And it's a, and, and, um, so I'm glad that you played it. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, if anybody's going to take on Marvin Gaye, it has to be somebody, uh, as Titanic as Aretha and, and she really pulls it off. And then, um, you know, those are the sort of the three primary figures in your, in your, tale of, mm-hmm. of your musical and spiritual quest but you mentioned several other artists that you ghost wrote for and the way that mm-hmm. they helped you and so i'm just going to throw some names out there and, and let you tell kind of quickly how they contributed mm-hmm. to your quest and so uh, mm-hmm. let's what how did bb king what what advice did he offer you well i mean it isn't so much advice as just who he was i mean he was a very beautiful man he was a very sweet man and very uh um kind of grounded and he actually uh, often went to Aretha's father's church when he was in Detroit so he you know he he was a christian he was also not a proselytizer um he had a kind of easy relationship it, there, there was a kind of an easy spirituality about BB uh, that I found uh, very, very uh, attractive. I mean, and also one of the things I loved about BB was because, you know, you'd often talk about God and what God meant in his life. And I would, you know, say, well, why didn't you become a gospel singer? And, you know, he told this story over and over again about being a kid and being in gospel groups and then going on the streets and singing gospel songs and with his guitar and people would come by and give him a grin or give him a hug. And then he would sing a blues song and they put a dime or give him a quarter or half a dollar. And that's why he became a blues singer. So, I mean, I just love, you know, the honesty about it, but ultimately what I came to understand and, and what I believe now, and BB was, I guess, one of the people who taught me that just by being in his company for a couple of years was that, there is no real difference between the gospel singer and the blues singer when it comes down to, you know, articulating or expressing the love energy. And, and, um, so ultimately I think, you know, there's this, I think on the album on the, uh, Aretha live at the Fillmore when uh, Ray comes up and sings uh, Aaron in the Dark. She calls him the right uh, Reverend Ray Charles. And and, um, I think, you know, B.B. was a preacher. I think Buddy Guy was a guy that I work with was is a preacher. I think there is sort of a musical uh, ministry, certainly, you know, John, um, who I never met, but I think John Lennon had a musical ministry. And I, I think these great, great artists, um, minister to us. And I think that's why, um, the form is so powerful. And, um, Edda James was another example of a person like that who began in the church and then became an R&B singer and a blues singer and a jazz singer and everything else. But she was basically sort of, uh, uh, sort of, uh, ministering to people, um, through her music. I have a, um, 
lesbian friend of mine said the first time she was with a uh, woman, she heard the record of uh, Etta James singing at last playing when she embraced a woman. And, and I just kind of thought to myself, wow, what a kind of a holy, sacred moment that had to be. And so um, I don't distinguish anymore. I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, you pray, you meditate, you listen to music, um, yeah, and music of all those forms is the one that elevates and um, excites my spirit the most. And mentioning Etta James, you've got a great quote in here, um, and it ties in with the theme and it adds sort of a dual meaning to the term ghost, which is a big figure in this book. But uh, she's talking about how when she had learned to sing, that the spirit would fill her. And she says, I can see, and she's talking to you, and she says, every time you start playing me some old Billie Holiday jam you think I yeah. should know about, I see you get all ghosted up. He's all yeah. up in you. You just don't know what to call him. Talk a little bit yeah. about that and the meaning of Well, I mean, because because ghost. because I think Etta saw me as did Marvin Day, as did, you know, Marvin Gaye and other people as a Christian or at, or at least... I mean, she got it where I was scared of it. I mean, you know, being Jewish and, you know, growing up in a Jewish household, having a Jewish wife and children, and I didn't want to kind of claim it. It, it It's too creepy. It's too, you know, whatever. You know, there's that uh, Woody Allen movie, I forgot which one, where he's toying with uh, spirituality and he walks through us and he's walking down the street and there's a... There's like a bobblehead Jesus uh, winking at him. I mean, I, I, I mean that was me. I mean, it was like, no, I don't want this. And 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 so when Edda, when people like um, like Edda would tell me you're all ghosted up, or it, 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 it just, I just knew it was true. And and so to actually, and, and I guess the sort of biggest. Uh, there's a story in, in my book where I'm uh, a preteen um, or just a teen and our family has moved from the East Coast to Dallas and I'm in the black neighborhood looking for jazz to hear and I feel very estranged from the world because I hated uh, Dallas when I first moved there and um, I walk by a black church and there's a choir and there's singing and there's joy in the church and I want to go in and a woman comes up to me and, and says, what's your name? And my speech impediment just allows me to get my name out. I stutter like crazy. And she said, it doesn't matter. Jesus knows your name and come on in. And I couldn't go in. And I had my nose pressed against the glass and I didn't go in till I was... 60 something years old and 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 I didn't and I wouldn't go in if Etta James or Marvin or any of these people hadn't say I really see you I really know your heart and you know your heart you know loves God because this music is God and you know, and I call it the God groove because the groove gets to me before anything. I mean, I, I just like beats. I mean, when I um, read, I can't read authors who don't have a um, who don't have some sort of uh, ism. And when I write, I try to establish a groove. So you turn the pages and you feel like there's some sort of uh, syncopation that kind of uh, lubricates. Uh, the prose and um, that groove, which which drew me um, to you know jazz and rhythm and blues and gospel, um, is I think you know the heartbeat and that you know some kind of cosmic groove that 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 organizes time so that we're not bored and we are transformed and 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 that groove. Is God to me, but but because God is inaudible and invisible, it's tough. You know, it's 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 tough even talking to you now without, um, you know, finding the right words. Because underneath it all is it's is it's is it's sort of mystery, and why somebody loves 
a Dolly Parton song or a Johnny Cash song or a Bob Dylan song or a Dexter Gordon song or any song that speaks to their heart is mysterious. And, and that connection, that, that, that kind of loving connection between us and uh, uh, music is mysterious. And, and, and um, you know, you can have computers and analyze it with beats and how many beats per second equal a hit song. And I understand, you know, high tech and I like high tech and I like, and I like electronic music and I love um, disco. And, it, you know, it isn't that it's just got to be a gospel singer singing alone. I mean, I like a lot of music, but, 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 but at its heart is mystery. And I don't know what else to call it, but God. And, and, and because it makes me feel good and it makes me want to be more loving and compassionate and understanding. And, and that goes back to being a ghost, you know, to be a good ghost writer, you can't judge the person you're working with. You have to, you have to show them empathy, you have to show them compassion, you have to show them curiosity. Um, and that, is, you know, a gift I've been given. I mean, I've often thought, because, you know, I grew up, my dad loved all the big-time authors, um, you know, Philip Ross and Saul Bello and Bernard uh, Malamud, and before that, the great Russian authors, Dostoevsky and blah, 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 you know, kind of high cultural stuff. And that's who I thought I had to be. That's what I thought art was. And if I had hit it, if I had made it, and I tried. I mean, I wrote uh, a couple of sort of novels. Uh, it's a whole other long story. But in any event, I just never made it big as a novelist. And my main source of income and how I have survived as an artist has been as a ghostwriter for 45 years. Had I made it as like a brand-named author, where people, because you know, people don't go out and buy my books. They buy a book because it's about B.B. King or Eddie James or whoever. So I don't really have an audience. Um, but had I made it as a big time author, where you know the David Ritz brand, David Ritz's next book will be about a dog or a horse or a World War II. I don't think I would have ever come to um, face the way I have. I think I would have been trapped up in my ego, which is still kind of a struggle for me. I don't mean that I've won that battle entirely because I have a big ego, but, 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 but I've been checked. I've been checked because I've been checked because to be, to, to be a good ghost, you got to check your ego. But had I become a big time author, man, I'd be ego tripping like crazy. And I don't think I would have ever found the humility or had the curiosity. It just would have been a whole other trip. And let's uh, let's close the show with one last song. This is a song performed by Ray Charles, but written by another person that you uh, knew, Percy Mayfield. Oh, great! A song called "The Danger Zone." All the time. That's because I've got a war in mind mm, You know the world is in an uproar And that was Ray Charles doing uh, Percy Mayfield's Danger Zone And I picked that because he had a quote in there That he felt songwriting was akin to creation and the way God is and, and finding order out of chaos. Talk about that yeah. a little bit. Well, I, and, and I mean, uh, Percy was a, just a hugely talented guy. I mean, he's the only guy I really know who spoke poetry. I mean, and, but, but was very, very kind of, uh, street and poetic at the same time. But, um, he was a bit of a prophet. I mean, you know, he wrote, please, uh, send me, uh, someone to love, which has been a song. It's, been a standard forever, um, but he had a chaotic life and was in a terrible axe, uh, car axe accident at a certain point. At a certain point, and his uh, and his um, head was kind of uh, ashed in, and his face was dis dis. Uh, 
uh, Egyert. And um, yet when he would speak, he would talk about how the creation of his songs came out of the chaos and confusion of his life and to give that chaos and confusion form, whether it be a 12-bar blues or a more standard uh, alid was the only way he kept from going crazy. And, and um, you know, somebody asked me uh, at a conference once, what's the main job of the author? What's the author's primary task? And my answer was two things. And that is just me talking, you know, every author gives it. But to me, the author's main task is not to go crazy. And I don't say that uh, uh, lightly because, you know, lots of authors have gone crazy and a lot of absolutely brilliant authors have gone crazy. But I see it, I don't want to go crazy. You know, I don't want to lose my mind. I don't want to go nuts. <laughs> I don't want to have a nervous breakdown. So I have to work on not going crazy. And then I said the other thing, uh, for me, the other uh main goal I have as a writer is to make a living uh, because I don't want to do anything else but write. You know, it's my joy and my passion, my way of making music. And if I don't make a living, I'll go crazy. Or if I go crazy, I won't be able to make a living. So I got to do both those things. Those are always my first two priorities. You know, make a living and don't go crazy. And, and I think Percy was one of the people who really made that clear to me that he was working to keep sane. And of course, you know, we know a lot of artists who have gone insane. And, and uh, that I think sums it up pretty well. The book is the God <laughs> groove and this All is right. David Ritz. David, it's been a treat. I've, I've, like I said, I've been reading your books for years without well, I appreciate your calling, man. Yeah, and, and I appreciate um, your giving me all this time. I've ah, enjoyed it. It's a treat. It's a treat, and hopefully we can have you back on maybe 15 times because there's so many great books to talk about. Thanks. Okay, brother. All right, thanks, David. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Come back next Monday when Ted Anthony joins the show to discuss his definitive history of the song House of the Rising Sun and its journey from the hills of Tennessee to New Orleans, New York, and Newcastle-upon-Tyne. The God Groove, A Blues Journey to Faith, is published by Howard Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 